Scientists have been trying to make a male version of the pill since the female version was invented over 60 years ago. In 2016, researchers published the results of a study on male birth control, which used injections of testosterone and progestogen instead of a pill. It was sponsored by the World Health Organization and involved participants from 10 study centers around the world. And it worked. It was 96% effective at preventing pregnancies. In the description of the results, the study says, following the recommendation of an external safety review committee, the recruitment and hormone injections were terminated early. Reporters heard about this, and pretty soon, media from around the world had picked it up. Most of them had the same take. Men almost had their own highly effective birth control, but the medical trial had to stop when some of the men said they couldn't take the side effects. But those side effects were almost identical to what women have been dealing with for decades. We're talking depression, muscle pain, mood swings, and libido changes. Even Cosmo ran a story. It was called Men Quit Male Birth Control Study Because It Was Giving Them Mood Swings. The subtitle was Welcome to the Club, Dudes. Also, Woman Up, with Woman Up in all caps. The problem is that that's not what happened. The study was stopped early, but not because men were quitting. You're listening to Value Judgments. My name is Eric Matheson. In this episode, the story of what really happened with the male birth control study. Okay, let's start big picture. Right now, there are three options for male birth control. Withdrawal, condoms, and vasectomy. Why aren't there more options? So I think there are a whole lot of reasons behind that, Eric, that go from the um, biological through to the financial. That's Richard Anderson. He's a professor of clinical reproductive science at the University of Edinburgh and a practicing physician in obstetrics and gynecology. Richard was one of the researchers for the 2016 study and has been studying male birth control since the early 1990s. Uh, from the biological aspect, um, you know, the female pill, which you essentially you were alluding to, is, um, you know, it, it's a fantastic achievement. But it, it, what it is doing is it's preventing the release of one cell every 28 days, the egg at ovulation. And so you just have to interfere with that highly organized process to get highly effective contraception by doing that. Whereas men, of course, are churning out millions of sperm all the time. And you have to go from, um, you know, tens of millions of sperm every day, every single day of the year, down to pretty close to zero every single day of the year. So perhaps biologically, it's harder to get that absolutely down, you know, nailed down hard than it is to interfere with a very subtly regulated process um, like ovulation. And I like to think of it, it's a bit different between, you know, you're, you're navigating a, a speedboat versus uh, a huge oil tanker. And trying to turn one around is a bit more challenging to try and turn the other one around. And although the biology is different, they're still both boats. You know, you're over-treating the, the bits of the brain that regulate the feedback pathways. And you're essentially fooling them into thinking that the testes are overactive. And so they switch off the stimulatory signals to the gonads. And so essentially, just as a woman on the pill, she doesn't have those hormones driving her the, the reproductive system. And the, the testes just essentially stop producing sperm and stop producing testosterone. So the, the historically, um, the studies I was initially involved in were just giving testosterone on its own. But you have to give a pretty big dose of that. And so it subsequently became clear that if you add a progesterone-like molecule, a progestogen, that does a lot of the suppressing. And then you can just give a, a lower dose of testosterone, which will be safer and have fewer, fewer side effects. 
But yeah, it's essentially a sex steroid-based hormonal method of contraception we're talking about. The main difference is testosterone can't be taken orally, so it has to be given in an injection or a gel that you rub on your body. That's the biological part, but according to Richard, the challenge of creating male birth control isn't just biological. And of course, there are, there are more commercial and financial aspects as well. Um, big pharma really ever wanted to be involved in. Um, back in the 1990, or late 1990s, um, as a field, we were successful actually in getting some of the large pharmaceutical companies who, who did big contraceptive work involved in the field, sadly, only for a short time. But, you know, uh, that spoke to the fact that they did do, uh, you know, presumably they did their financial analysis and decided that there was a market and there was a commercial gain. But it's clearly a new area and therefore would have, and, and there's a perception that female contraception has got it wrapped up, which is, of course, not entirely the case. But it's, you know, it's a new field and people think, well, actually, is really a problem, is, is an argument. Not one I would make, but it's, it's an argument you hear. This is why the 2016 study was funded by the WHO. Pharmaceutical companies aren't interested in funding the research, so the WHO has to foot the bill, and things move much more slowly. So now to the 2016 study, which actually started about a decade earlier. And so what this study involved was um, giving an injection of testosterone and an injection of a progestogen every eight weeks. And... We were one of many centers around the world that took part in this. Um, we recruited couples because it was going to be a real contraceptive efficacy study. People were going to use this as their only contraceptive. And, you know, at the end of the day, you count the babies and you see whether it worked. And that's the only way you can really test a contraceptive. The couples had to be in stable monogamous relationships. The study describes the other requirements, a coital frequency of twice a week on average, an intent to remain in the relationship for the course of the study, no desire for pregnancy within the next two years, and willingness to accept a low but unknown risk of pregnancy. You watch them for a year, then count the babies. And almost all the couples they wanted to recruit had made it through the year. Uh, for most guys, it did go through the full year. Yeah, it was, the, the whole study was stopped early, a little bit early. Um, but actually, for most guys, um, they were had already completed the year by the time that decision was made. Um, and actually, that was part of the decision, actually, was that most of the data had actually already been collected. And therefore, part of the decision was that actually the, the further increment from carrying on was actually only going to be a fairly marginal benefit from um, not carrying on. Any study like this has what's called a data safety and monitoring committee, which has access to the data during the study. The committee's job is to make sure that everything is going as expected. For example, if side effects are too high, then the committee can shut down the study. All clinical trials have a data safety and monitoring committee, and they were happy with progress of the study. They weren't worried there was any particular adverse safety issues involved in the study, and they recommended carrying on. Um, but this other committee that I don't think any of us had ever heard of, um, but clearly had a role within WHO, um, sort of got, somehow seemed to be reviewing the data as well. Uh, and they felt that on the balance between how much was still to be gained versus um, what they perceived to be the side effects or the reports of side effects, then uh, the, the study should be discontinued. And, and that's what happens. So what they were worried about was uh, particularly mood changes. This is an important detail that most news coverage missed. It wasn't that study participants couldn't handle the side effects, but that the review committee decided that the benefits of continuing the study weren't worth it. There were side effects, and it's true that they were similar to what women experience on the pill. About half the men reported mild acne. 
38% reported a mild increase in libido, which isn't surprising if you're giving men testosterone. There were also mood changes. 17% of participants reported mild emotional disorder. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the, all, the great majority of those reports of mood changes came from one or two sites, not across the board. In fact, 95% of the reported cases of emotional disorder came from a single research center in Indonesia. Um, so it wasn't really representative of the, the study conduct at all. It was a matter of one or two sites being very diligent, perhaps, in, in recording things. Because you'd appreciate that, you know, in one's day-to-day -day life, nobody goes around particularly saying, have you felt any X, Y, or Z, you know, today? But in a clinical trial, you're often going to be specifically asking, have you felt this? Have you felt that? And many guys are going to say, no, I'm fine. But if people start thinking, well, actually, yeah, actually, I feel slightly different. I wouldn't have mentioned it, but now you're asking, perhaps. And so that then gets recorded as an adverse event, even if it wasn't something that the guy found to be actually a real problem. The Indonesia Center was also where most of the reports of other side effects came from. And it's important to note that even with the side effects, participants were pretty satisfied with the birth control. At the end of the study, 83% of the male participants and 82% of their partners were satisfied or very satisfied with the method. About the same number said they would use injectable testosterone as a method of contraception. So the story so far is that the birth control was 96% effective and people were satisfied with it even given the side effects. The study was stopped early by an external committee, but this was because most of the data was already collected, so trying it on more couples wouldn't add much. But then the study was published and we got this. Also, you have to remember that there's a little bit of a different uh, risk-benefit analysis when it comes to men using a contraceptive. When women use a contraceptive, they're balancing the risks of that against the risks of pregnancy, and pregnancy itself does carry some risks. In the case of men, these are healthy men, and they're not going to suffer any risks if they get somebody else pregnant. That's from NPR. The charitable interpretation is that he meant that men face no physical risks if they get someone pregnant. But that just shows the problem with thinking of birth control as just about physical health. Men have, and should have, a strong interest in controlling their reproductive systems too. Here's New York University bioethicist Art Kaplan on a Boston public radio show. So speaking of men and their concern about their, their Marjorie, uh, love this masculinity, <laughs> I just love this one because uh, you, know, you hear over the years, many women talk about how there are some side effects to birth control pills, depression uh, being one of them. 20 to 30 percent of the women who take birth control pills experience depression, but nonetheless, because that is their preferred choice of birth control, they keep taking it and suffer the side effects. Now we learn about this study on a hormonal birth control method for men, Art Kaplan, and what happened? Well, not testicular shrinkage. Um, <laughs> Kaplan there is referencing another study that they talked about earlier in the program. But a lot of other nasty side effects, and the men didn't like them, and they said, forget it. We're not going to chase that uh, approach to contraception. Let's just go back to Women. So women, uh, well, let's put it another way. Men are just weenies. Basically, everything that Kaplan says here is false. He says that men experienced a lot of other nasty side effects, which isn't really true. He then says that the men didn't like them, which is probably true, but only about 15% withdrew once they started the study, which could be for many reasons. Then Kaplan says... 
They said, forget it. We're not going to chase that approach to contraception. This also isn't true. 83% of the men were satisfied with the approach and wanted to use it as contraception. The study wasn't shut down because men left the study. The study was shut down by the independent committee. Kaplan then concludes with, men are just weenies. Since he gets all the other parts wrong, this conclusion isn't justified. Richard Anderson also has problems with the men are weenies conclusion. Yeah, there was a lot of comment about men can't handle side effects and they're making a big deal about what women have to put up with all the time. Um, And I think actually um, part of that, the fact that women do have to put up with side effects from their contraception methods is absolutely genuine. And making it into a sort of gender war is really unhelpful, though. You know, um, know, I think one of the things you'll see from the um, the, the publication of the trial is actually how few men withdrew from the study because of side effects. And actually it was hardly any. So although men might say, I'm, I'm feeling a bit different taking this, it, it wasn't enough of a problem to say, I don't want to carry on with it anymore, even though it's in a research environment and people have every opportunity to drop out whenever they want and go back to their other method of contraception. So I think that speaks volumes as to how significant and important these so-called side effects were. They were generally pretty minor. I think there are important questions about why the media latched onto the narrative that women have to put up with side effects that men can't handle, that men are just weenies, as bioethicist Art Kaplan put it. In fact, most men in the study were happy to put up with the side effects. But this case also raises important questions about the review committee's decision to stop the study early. I spoke to Jess Flanagan, a professor at the University of Richmond in Virginia. A big part of her approach is that safety is a value judgment, not a scientific one. When we make a judgment about whether a drug or whether participating in a research trial or something like that, whether that's safe or not, we're making a judgment about whether or not the risks and the expected costs of participating or of using that drug are worth it um, relative to whatever benefits or upside participation or using the drug could bring. And the worth it judgment that's implicit in any judgments about safety or unacceptable riskiness or anything like that, that's a normative judgment. So it's not as if you can like look under a microscope at a chemical and be like, oh yeah, that there it is. There's the safety property (laughs) of this, of this molecule. You have to look at how using that drug or participating in a study or undergoing a medical procedure fits into a person's life as a whole. Given this, Jess's view is that oversight committees should be limited in scope. The best person to decide if continuing the trial is worth it is the participant himself. I don't think that um, trial participants have a right to access whatever drugs they want. I think if manufacturers want to like withdraw access or shut down a trial for whatever reason, they can. Like They don't have a duty to facilitate people using investigational drugs. On the other hand, um, I don't think that it's a good reason for people to shut down a trial on the basis that they think that participating in the trial is unacceptably risky for the participants, because that's not a judgment that the people who are conducting the trial are in the best position to make. And so when the participants are in the trial, If they want to drop out of the trial because they think that the side effects aren't worth it, I think that they are within their rights to do that. Um, But I don't think that they should be kicked out of the trial for those types of paternalistic reasons, just because I think that those paternalistic reasons are empirically misguided. I don't think that people who are overseeing trials through like IRBs, for example, are in a good position to judge whether or not continuing is worth it for the people. 
or they're not in a better position than the people who are participating, at least. The review committees are making value judgments about how bad the side effects are and how valuable the research is. But Jess thinks this is a mistake. One interesting thing about this case is that, like, when we think about people, like, using hormones, right, for birth control, um, the when the study was shut down, they were saying, like, men using, like, a version of, like, hormonal therapy is my impression of what it was, um, for birth control. That's not worth it for them, right? And then in other areas, when we look at, for example, people using hormone replacement therapy to like express their gender identity or whatever. Um, can you imagine if researchers like were like kind of eyeballing it and deciding like for any given person whether it was worth it for them to have access to like like something that's going to enable them to like live in accordance with their gender identity? Like no, like <laughs> it would be like totally out of line, right? Um, and so it is interesting in how people sort of draw a distinction between like medical conditions or mental health or something. And then like what they might think of as male birth control as being like, Oh, just something that's like a enhancement. Like it's only enabling like recreational sex or something like that, as if that's like less valid. And so I think what this is reflecting is that the judgment that researchers were making was reflecting a kind of normative judgment about the value of recreational sex as being like less significant uh, for people's well-being than like mental health considerations or, um, you know, women who take hormonal contraception because of like menstrual cramps or things like that. Um, but I don't know, like for some people, it might be really important for them to be able to like recreationally have sex without having to like use a condom or get a vasectomy and that this could be a valued option. And it sounds like people in the trial really did value that option. So I don't think that it's like a good idea that people in who are running the trial got to take a stand on the value of the research or the for the people who are participating in it. Yeah. And for other trials with hormones, if people were like, oh, I don't think it's worth it, I think people would say like, well, that's not really your business, whether it's worth it. <laughs> like if I judge that it's worth it for menstrual cramps, then like you should let women have it, right? And so why would we think that some kinds of well-being are going to be more morally urgent than other kinds of well-being. Fewer male birth control options is worse for men and women. In that way, it is also sort of like, there is a sort of sexism to that where it's just like, oh, we're just going to assume that having women bear the cost of like pharmaceutical birth control is like, that's an acceptable status quo and we shouldn't, you know, burden people equally. Um, another thing is, I think men often, like we don't really consider like men's interest in not becoming parents when we talk about reproductive rights because <laughs> I think that that like brings up like a lot of um, hard questions about like child support and like whether or not men can be required to pay child support but if you think that men should have rights to refuse to be parents or to not become parents then giving them more reproductive autonomy in this form would be like really good for them and then if you think that men who have unplanned pregnancies with women um, are required to like pay child support and like, you know, assume all of these like parental responsibilities and stuff. Well, all of the more reason to enable men to like take steps where they can like take on some kinds of cost and side effects to protect themselves against this like unwanted burden of having to pay it. And so like, whatever you think about men's interest in 
with respect to like reproductive freedom. Like there would be a very strong interest for them to have control over whether or not they become parents as well. Jess thinks male birth control would also be empowering for women. Well, we do have male birth control in the form of vasectomy and um, men can use condoms. But of course, those are very costly. And so when people are like, oh, like, um, you know, oftentimes people will complain about women having to bear the cost of birth control. Like they have to pay for the birth control. They have to endure the side effects. They have to put up with it. That's just because uh, they are implicitly acknowledging that male forms of birth control have costs that exceed the cost to the couple of the woman being on birth control. So like if people don't like to use condoms or if the man doesn't want to undergo surgery to like permanently alter his fertility, then couples are left with very few options. Um, so when people say like, oh, we already have birth control for women and that's like more important to like give women this kind of reproductive freedom. Um, the status quo is one where that reproductive freedom for women is actually kind of burdensome in virtue of the fact that there's no other option for men that the couples who are you know, making these decisions find acceptable because it's not just like men don't want to wear condoms or men don't want to get vasectomies. Like often like women will prefer not to use condoms or women would prefer that their husbands not get vasectomy because they, they value that future fertility. And so I think male birth control would be empowering for women as well because it would give them the option to not have to use hormonal contraception going forward. And many women do have really serious side effects. And like, it could be that a couple, you know, is one of those groups where it's like the woman has really severe side effects and the man does not. And so you should let couples kind of decide that between the two of them. I don't think it's like an IRB's place to intervene and decide whether or not it's worth it for the guy, but it might be relevant whether his partner thinks it's worth it for the guy. <laughs> like she might want to have a say in who has to bear the burdens of hormonal contraception. Richard Anderson, the researcher, also worries about the effects of stopping trials early. Given all the misunderstanding, it could have longer-term effects. Well, I think as soon as you have that sort of decision, it's obvious that there's going to be some adverse publicity from it. Because as you alluded to in your um, introductory comments, you know that uh, contraception, particularly male contraception, in fact, anything to do with sex or reproduction is always all over the newspapers if there's a story. You know, people like reading about this sort of stuff. Um, and so if there's a problem, there's a side effect, there's an issue, um, that's big time. And of course, that you know, you, you'll be f familiar with the sort of the, the so-called pill scares uh, that have occurred over the years now and again. Um, the last one was luckily quite a number of years ago and related to scares about blood clots. And, and all over the newspapers, millions of women stopped using their contraceptive pills an awful lot of them then immediately went and got pregnant accidentally. And of course, that puts them at much further, bigger risk of the side effects of that particular than if they stayed on the pill. So you're always very aware when a trial is stopped, that is just going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's putting fuel on a fire when it comes to the newspapers. Based on all of this, the WHO committee made a mistake when it stopped the study. Part of the mistake was that stopping the study caused way more attention than it deserved. It isn't the committee's fault that the media and some commentators got the details so wrong, but none of that would have happened if the committee had let the study finish. But the committee's mistake is actually bigger. Its role is to make value judgments about whether a study is worth it, but that's not something a committee can do effectively. People value things differently. If most of the participants are staying in the study voluntarily, stopping it early is a value judgment that the participants themselves don't share. 
It would be better for the committee to let people decide for themselves. It's gonna be alright. Yeah, yeah. How can you tell? Yeah, yeah. I feel it. Thanks to Richard Anderson and Jess Flanagan. Value Judgments is produced by me, Eric Matheson. If you like the show, please tell your friends and subscribe on Apple Music or Spotify. If you really like the show, you can become a paid subscriber at valuejudgments.substack.com. Thanks for listening.